In the beginning, there was only the holy darkness, Ta'in Sof, the source of life. And then, in the course of history, at a moment in time, the world of a thousand thousand things emerged from the heart of the holy darkness as a great ray of light. As time continued, the vessels that contained this great light broke, and the light of the world was scattered into a thousand thousand fragments, and they fell into all events and all people where they remain deeply hidden until this very day. We are here because we are born with capacity to find the hidden light, lift it up, and make it visible once again, restoring the wholeness of all things. A commentary from the Jewish Haggadah, shared by Rachel Naomi Remen. Welcome to the podcast with the anti-environmental host. Well, that, that's what you would think if you read the title of the last episode and didn't actually listen to it. A primary tenet of criticism is that one would actually have engaged with the content they would be critiquing. Anyway, here we are trying to figure out what it means to be human. And recently we embarked on the topic of ecology, assuming we are alive in a world being human probably deals with that world. So last episode, I gave my penultimate reason why I think there should be a consideration for ecological ethics. I called it ecological entanglement. My argument being that we should care about the earth because our well-being is dependent on it. Existence in my purview is entangled. That itself does deserve some critique. I'm making a lot of argumentative leaps there. Therefore, I should try to state my case with more specifics. I, for one, am not satisfied with embracing a perspective without being able to, to sensibly and logically understand it, at least try to. And so for some of you, you know, this might be some interesting takes to affirm where you're already at. For others, it, it might be an active investigation, you know, to determine if any of this holds up. So if the last episode was the broad stroke, this gets into a little more specificity. These are philosophical points, kind of in general, but they're also more like themes. You know, maybe, maybe they are way off. Maybe they're just justification for what I already think. Confirmation bias, you know. But this is what I use to provide a framework to, to nuance the ecological entanglement and to help establish how ecological ethics should play out. So let's get into it. Let's learn, let's grow, and let's become more human. I want to start by asking you a question. Why is there nature at all? Why have all of this earth and plants and creatures or what I called creation last time? And this is going to come up throughout the episode, but when, when I even say creation or some of these other points we're going to get into, it's not with a religious emphasis. Try to see past that. It's with this whole issue of the absolute and the contingent. Something transcendent, that's metaphysics, which I'll jump to that shortly, results in something physical. But that's the question. Why do we need to have all of this stuff anyway? And there's biological arguments, right? A, a diversity of beings and life forms allow a certain experience of life to exist. There's geological arguments, lots of good stuff there. But I want to ask the, the why. Why? 
why all this? Recently, uh, a content website called Aeon shared an essay by F. Bailey Norwood titled Gardening with Heidegger, From Mystery to Truth via the Earth. Aeon consistently has great articles, highly recommend it. Uh, It's a great site. Um, But this one delved into something that I quite enjoy, the philosophy of the earth. And the author first talks about how gardens have been evident in almost every civilization, and not just for food protection, but also for aesthetic purposes. Humans have always tended to find beauty and meaning in, in plants and animals, which is why a lot of religious tendencies also include these components. But the author shared some insights from uh, a philosopher named David Cooper in his uh, what's called A Philosophy of Gardens, which is also a great read, where Cooper says this, quote, The garden exemplifies the massive but often unrecognized dependence of the human creative activity upon the cooperation of the world, embodying a unity between human beings and the natural world and intimate codependence. End quote. Sounds like ecological entanglement to me. But there's another emphasis here. We become as a result of nature and as a part of nature. But humans also have the potential to help nature become as well. Living in and with the world becomes a kind of art form that is essential to the survival of all of us contingent stuff, but also reveals an essence of being alive. Art is any means of engaging with mystery, and there's the common forms, you know, music, poetry, paintings. But there's this human tendency to try to understand the world, and we create things in response, and anything that engages in this, that, that's an art form. Well, this idea of mystery is about anything that surpasses our normal expressive abilities, which is why it leads to art. And mystery often carries a negative connotation. You know, it's just all the stuff we don't yet know. And if you would just be smarter, then there wouldn't be mystery. But mystery has more often been understood as dealing with the realities of conscious experience that are beyond qualification to us sentient beings. Being in love. Witnessing the the purpose of actions of nature when when a tree's leaves rot into mold. Or suffering. Those are certainly experiences that we can partially explain with scientific data, you know, the firing of certain neurotransmitters when you're in love, the decomposition of biological material from a tree, or the psychological trauma of a survivor of pain. But what offers a a metaphysical style mystery, a reality, is that none of those things can be fully explained and understood with only their physical properties. Uh, you know, the rotting of leaves is very scientific, yet the teleological purposeness, that remains elusive. How do you study that? Because mystery is simply that which is intrinsically beyond the natural and the physical. That's what I mean by mystery. It's, it's beyond the physical observation of empirical science. And all of this deals with the epistemological finitude and its accompanying ass- assumptions. And that's a mouthful. So, anyway, when we engage with more assumed forms of art, we're engaging with mystery. It's something not so easily expressed with our limited selves. 
But Cooper claims that the same is true of nature. We have these direct engagements and, and encounters that's revealing the essence of something. But he also points out that it still leaves a deeper essence obscure. And uh, the philosopher Heidegger, he made this claim that humans exist in a world that they cannot fully understand. We will never completely capture its existence. So why is there all this stuff? On one hand, that's an unanswerable question because it is a metaphysical question. On the other hand, all of this stuff is part of the constant and unending journey of unveiling the world of which we are a part and of which will always be obscure to our sight. Nature reveals more of the world to us than we can get on our own even with the development of physical sciences. But in turn, humans can reveal more of nature than it can on its own. Ecological entanglement. But all of that philosophical play simply brings me to my first point, the, the first ingredient or principle of my ecological perspective. So, first on my list. And, and these do kind of follow a cause and effect order. Well, hopefully you'll pick up on that. First on my list is one that I brought up last episode. And honestly, even after that bit of rambling, could use some more defending. The first ingredient is contingency. Give me a moment to explain. Contingency is the idea that finite beings have a cause that is not themselves. You did not create yourself. Uh, this is part of a branch of philosophy that I was talking about called metaphysics. Considering anything that is not the physical world, that's metaphysics. So existence and meaning and all of that. Uh, and then you might, hey, like God. Yeah, yes, the idea of God would be a metaphysical conversation. But metaphysics doesn't imply religion, you know. The same can be said about love. You can't dissect a human body and find love in there. You can't use botany to understand the aesthetics of a garden. These are metaphysical endeavors. And any good scientist will always know where physics and empiricism ends and where metaphysics begins. They're different. Contingency, then, is a way to describe how things exist. Right, that there is a source of existence that is not the thing itself. That's the most basic definition I can give. So last episode, I mentioned that all of these contingent beings are part of the same ecological composition. You know, the emphasis was on how us and plants and animals were different, but we aren't that different. We share a dependency on each other's existence. If for no other reason than, you know, we have to eat. But that dependency is because none of us exist by our own doing. Contingency implies that something not part of the finite experience had to cause the finite experience. What then does this mean for creation and ecology and earth stuff? Well, another way to say it is that there is a givenness to the world. Humans did not create the world and therefore do not own it. Now, I don't want to focus on the source itself. That would be a focus on who or what is God and transcendence and all of that. That's not where I want to spend our time, at least not right now. 
But if we are contingent on a source of life that is transcendent and absolute and singular and infinite, these are all descriptors used in classical metaphysics. And listen, if you're beating your atheist hammer into your phone right now, save it for another conversation. Call this source some quotient of quantum mechanics if that works for you. Whatever the cause, it isn't us. That's the point. Something that isn't that which is created leads to us. And the point of all this rambling is that being contingent means that life is a gift and it is a mysterious one. And again, mystery doesn't mean fairy tales which we tell because science has not yet explained the process. In most wisdom traditions and, and in philosophical metaphysics, mystery was a way to give credence to human limitations by acknowledging that which is incomprehensible to the singular finitude of a human person. Contingency and mystery remind us of dependence. And within seeing ourselves as part of the whole of the ecosystem, we are dependent on the other parts. But this also emphasizes that we are dependent on that which is beyond us and transcends the limited scope of your being, whatever you want to call that. We are dependent on whatever made this possible. That's the givenness behind existence. Think about this in terms of uh, ownership, specifically land ownership. By all legal and civic constructs, you may, in fact, have ownership over a piece of land. Yet, before you existed, chances are quite high that someone else inhabited that land. Also, just as likely, someone else will eventually inhabit that same land one day. So, is it yours? Is it your land? Or are you holding on to it for a season? Because if you are but a temporary sojourner, because you're going to die, who is also responsible to the other inhabitants, how should you treat that land? How should you treat your home, your property? And when it comes to land occupation, the notion that we are tenants also implies conditions, right? Conditions that will affect us during our stay and conditions that will ensure that just as you received access and, and use this property, it will continue to be accessible and useful to those after you, a sort of passing it on, right? You could burn a home to the ground, but it probably wouldn't provide good function for yourself. It would also eliminate a gift that benefited you from benefiting other possible recipients of a gift that are going to transcend you just your lifetime. If you see the earth as a gift, there is certainly gratitude, right? Thankful. But the other effect is that the gift ought to be honored for the sake of other sharers in the gift. So when it comes to land, it's a gift because you didn't create it. And because it's a gift, it's also not yours. It, it's belonging is for many. It's not just your gift, but everyone. That's how contingency works. Humility leads to gratefulness, which leads to faithfulness to the gift, which leads to charity with the gift. And as I said last episode, our lives, it's not about autonomy. There's only responsible or irresponsible dependence. And this is a responsibility to preserve what our limited lives can hold. But what does this have to do with the ecology and the earth? Well, this 
dependence and responsibility means that we ought not live by our own devices. We must learn to live on terms not set by ourselves. And I would say, you know, among the apathetic or the the common environmentalists, the current disposition is that the earth is below us and subject to us. It's a gift, right? So we get to do with it as we please. It's our raw material and object for our every desire. And this is where the the ecological entanglement comes in and pairs up nicely with contingency. It's a shared gift, which means it comes with rigorous conditions. So if we are dependent on other gift givers, if the gift does not begin and end with us, and if we are dependent on the gift giver, then we are not masters over the earth, but participants. Though we belong to it, it does not belong to us. And technically, this this all deals with interdependence and finitude. There's a certain need to put ourselves in our proper place when we think about our relationship to each other, to ourselves, but to the earth. I just think that when you do that, it leads to particular attitudes and behaviors within our proper place in the world. This this should help us have like this proper sense of proportion within this givenness. But I'd also like to think that, you know, while humans do have a particularly unique role as sentient and, and conscious beings, which we'll get into in another ingredient here, we're also kind of sloppy. And, and one of the, the central tenets of agrarianism that maybe we can steal from here if the fellow gift sharers involve other members of the ecological whole, then they may be our best teachers. Practically, it, it might be helpful for humans to acknowledge that we cannot learn from ourselves to be better than we are. I mean, maybe we can, but there's a particular model of nature, which is also full of destruction and chaos, but this particular model of nature might be doing it better than we are. The other possibility which brings up more metaphysic stuff, is that the model of the source of life can be showing us how we can do better than we are. Again, whatever that is. And that model, that that source, that can function as a mirror by which we kind of attune our lives. And honestly, this is where religion comes in. That's That's what I think religion is intended to do. And, and that's a worthwhile endeavor. You want to understand the source of life so that you can better reflect it. Kind of wish religions would actually take that seriously. But that's contingency, okay? We are finite. We are dependent on something for our existence, and our lives should be in response to that dependence. We are part of a great mystery of which we are not the authors. Or in the words of Thoreau, The curious world we inhabit is more wonderful than convenient, more beautiful than useful. It is more to be enjoyed than used. How then should we live with all of this stuff that reflects the reality of the givenness of the world? How can we learn from what we see revealed in the natural world to determine the actions of our everyday lives? You know, if you started with just this perspective, What would that kind of life look like? Which probably would not be how most of us live, myself included. There's a lot of work to be done here. All right.
Premise number two. And the second premise follows suit of the gift idea. And I call this one inherent value. In other words, the world is good. All of it. And this does not mean that the world is ideal or that the world and nature always functions ideally. Essentially, all parts of the world occupy the same givenness and gift as yourself. And this could go two ways. For a lot of people, we de-elevate ourselves. Now, we are nothing. We are not worthy. We deserve the worst. Everyone else is ahead and better and more. In the end, however, we're all just dust and dirt. Don't give everyone else so much credit. No one else is better than you because we are all just creatures of the earth, a conglomeration of carbon and elements. But there's also another tendency, one to elevate the self. We are special and different and privileged. The world is but an object for our use. We are the primary character in a game filled with NPCs. This is egocentrism, where we, we see that we are the center of the world because we only see the world from our eyes. Nope. Y'all are just dust and dirt too. But the specific address here, in terms of how this informs ecological ethics, is in concern for the non-human. We, we do really well at talking about equality in relation to the human race. Emphasis on talking about. And I'm not saying that we need to start having billboards about how we're all family, plants, animals, and cell structures included. But we do seem to have a superiority complex, right? And this can lead to, you know, willingly using components of the creative world for our own benefit and at its own expense. But it also misses the potential goodness. This is dealing here with our perception of all the things. And that includes you, but everything else. And the key here is... What does it do to you if you see all this stuff as having value? Not only that it shares the same givenness and contingency of life, but also that it carries an important weight because it, just like you, is inherently good. For example, uh, a way that I don't see us think rightly about this is through churches. And no, this is not just a way for me to rail against modern mainstream Christianity. I mean, it kind of is. But alas, for many churchgoers, the most holy spaces within the Christian imagination are reserved for church buildings. They wanted to capture something of the divine presence, and human architecture became the best representation of transcendence. Please tell me you're catching the multifaceted irony here. Humans finite contingent beings using their own guise to capture transcendence, which if actually transcendent can't be captured, but it is also confined to the limitations of the human construct. I love it. So you have artifacts elevated to supernatural status. You're worshiping something made with human hands. Hmm. But here's, here's why this is important for our second premise. Not only is it a weird human tendency to domesticate transcendence to our own created artifacts within our own limited comprehension, the result is that everything else becomes secular. It gets diminished in its importance. And it is this sort of haphazard dualism where certain things and people and spaces and ideas and music and art and so on are either deemed sacred or secular, 
and someone has to decide which is which, which usually has some kind of agenda behind it. And just while we're here, Christian makes a fine noun. It's a quite terrible adjective. But I also find it interesting that the Jewish imagination doesn't tend to use these dichotomies, you know, especially in separating things in a way that assigns value. They have they have clean and unclean, holy and mundane, but there's a clear emphasis that all spaces and experiences are rife with transcendent presence and mystery. That That's that story that I shared at the beginning. Things and spaces and experience and whatnot can be different, but the emphasis is that if if there is a transcendent source, then anything that exists must be an effect or outcome from that source. So to say that something isn't is to say that it must have been created by something else. The opposite of this approach, though, is to see that all of it shares the same gift and therefore in sharing the same gift has important value or goodness. Or as Gandhi said, There is no such thing as sacred and secular. There is only the sacred and all that we fail to see as sacred. And one of the most important factors to all of this is that this point of view often leads to seeing the physical world as unimportant. I mean, that's the critique of the sacred and secular dialectic of Christianity. So, oh, that's not important, so go ahead and destroy it or go ahead and use it for our own gains. But the caution I urge us to have is when we diminish any part of the world, we are making nothing out of a great something. If it has inherent value, then you're not just being apathetic, you're being destructive. Or as we talked about last episode, the effect of that diminishment will eventually find its way back to you. If our relationship to nature is arbitrary, then our actions will be arbitrary. This perspective by which you assign the value of something will determine whether or not you act responsibly toward it. When we deny responsibility, we pretend that we're not dependent on it. But in acting interdependence, having that responsibility, health and entanglement and all of that, in my opinion, that begins with how we view the stuff we are interdependent on. So, that's inherent value, which deals with your perspective, which is how we assign value. If we don't think the world is important, then we won't see it as important, which means we won't seek to know it, which means we won't care about it, and humans tend to destroy what they do not comprehend, and we don't try to comprehend what we don't think is valuable or important. The third ingredient or premise moves past just perspective, how we see things. So uh, maybe I'd put it this way. If contingency is about the nature of existence, and inherent value is about the perception of existence, then this third one is about the mechanics of existence. What I mean is that there is a component to nature and ecology, including humans, of course, that can dictate how we actually interact with it. And I call this one inherent process. It is that living things are in process. The world is ongoing. Now, wait a second. Am I using process philosophy to make an ethical case for ecology? Sure am. So, if you are stringently opposed to process philosophy, then you will find fault with this. Uh, However, I made my case for process philosophy in regards to the nature of change 
all the way back in episode three. So if you need to pause this and go have that dialogue, please do so back there. But the idea of nature being in process, this constant state of growth and change and development, uh, I think it can be affirmed even outside of the philosophical. For example, anyone who has ever tended a garden has seen this in action. They're called weeds. Plants proliferate seeds, branches widely unfold, and plants continue whether we want them to or not. The, the reason you have to cut the grass is because the grass is in process. Right? The basic point here is that the natural world will continue to move indefinitely unless it is imposed upon. Creation is endowed with the ability to generatively create life. And you might say, well, wait, what about, what about rocks? Rocks aren't generative. They don't grow. What about plastic? That doesn't even degenerate. I, I understand that. And I can only point to geology and, and weathering and erosion. But all things are always changing. Uh, we, we could also bring up the laws of thermodynamics, right? Energy cannot be created or destroyed. It can be made into more unusable forms, though. So while a rock might not grow, its matter continues to change and evolve in various forms. And the rock itself or the plastic itself is also causing change in the world around it. Anyways, beyond process philosophy, another technical thing that needs brought up, you know, since we're talking about thermodynamics, is entropy. We need to bring this word back. It's such a good word. Very helpful word. Entropy. Entropy is the idea that the physical world will continue, it will generate, it will grow, and it will do this indefinitely unless imposed upon. Entropy is the idea that when energy gets used or matter gets impeded, it's all still there. It will still undergo process, but it can be made into an unusable form. Not all energy can have a cyclic output process when diminished to a certain extent. So you have a fire. Right? The tree became wood logs, which became ash. The total energy of matter, it's all still there. The process of change will still occur indefinitely, but the output of the tree cannot be the same again. In fact, the light emitted in the form of flames is the energy being put through a process of changing into a more unusable form. You're like actually watching that happen. And that's the conflict with this third premise of inherent process. Generating and creating life is natural, but it can be impeded. Like think, what would a world look like without human beings? And that's why this premise is important, at least for me. You start with the contingency and, and interdependence of everything. And then you move into a particular posture toward everything with inherent value. But we still have the human role. Humans are in the world and we seem to be a bit different from the rest of the world, at least according to us. And this brings up things like sentience and consciousness and qualia and a bunch of other philosophy of mind stuff that I don't have the endurance nor the qualification to speak about here. So we've kind of made the case that humans are not superior to the natural world. There's interdependency. It's not a master-servant relationship. 
but humans, we could argue, are the only species capable of permanently impeding existence. So we, while we might not be superior in terms of being a master, there's still some superiority, right? And this ingredient or principle, it's not just about describing the physical world, you know, that it grows. I said this was about the mechanics of existence. Growth is part of that mechanic, but it also supposes a human role within growth. Creation is endowed with the ability to generate, humans included, but humans seem endowed with the ability to affect that generativity. And I've been kind of hitting at this the whole time. Interdependence assumes responsibility, and humans are capable of enacting or failing to enact that responsibility. You know, I could have just said that humans need to take action, that we, we need to guide and care for the earth. But I think most people would say, you know, yeah, that's quite obvious. Or even on the other side, uh, more hippie, liberal sentiments. I like the idea that this is a philosophical, psychological, geological, biological reality. You know, we shouldn't just do it because it sounds good. We should only take this cue if it's, if it's a good one, if it's theoretically and practically right. So assuming that I've made that case, which if you're keeping score at home, I haven't completely, that conversation must continue. The point of the third premise is that the natural world's vitality will depend on humans to refine, guide, care for, nurture, and create within the world's natural generativity. We depend on nature to be able to exist, including one another, we need the ecological whole, but the various diversities within an ecosystem have a peculiar relationship to us conscious ones. It's my opinion that humans have a role within the ongoing process of the world to participate with it and nurture its continuation. And that provides great possibility, great responsibility, but equally great chance of destruction because we can, we can betray that role. We can use our power to dominate and destroy. You got to think of it like a, like a parent relationship. The power isn't meant to secure selfish ambition or achieve cumulative desires. At least we would say, you know, that's probably not healthy parenting. You can still choose to do that though. But this is where the first two premises must be remembered. You might be unique within the ecological whole, but we're not above it. We ought to be guiding things, but we also ought to be learning from it. You know, if this process would continue indefinitely without us, that's a pretty good case for creating sustainability. Like sometimes the best thing you can do as a parent is get out of the way. But the right to guide also implies that we therefore do not have the right to hold the earth in contempt, nor to exterminate it. We have the right to use and care for the gift, not ruin it. It's like the universe is a song, and we are not the conductors of this vast orchestra, but we are performers, and we will dictate how the performance continues. Whew. That was a tricky one. Concluding the nature of nature and the nature of human nature within the ecological whole of nature is not going to happen all at once, all right? Especially with the end goal of offering some sort of ethical interpretation as a result of this, right? Be patient with me. But hopefully, 
it does capture that nuance of the human earth relationship with a little bit of a case being made. Yeah. What can I say? Premise number three is still in process. So let's move on to number four. And I'm going to make this one quick because if you thought the other ones were too subjective, then you're really going to have fun with this one. And for those of you who have diligently listened to each episode, you may remember back in episodes 13 through 17, and then some, that we patiently waded through the waters of argumentation. We also discussed how there are various ways to make moral arguments. Throughout that, I mentioned a specific way called teleology. Teleology is just a fancy way to say goal or vision or end. And it's the idea that we base current actions and behaviors and virtues on the way we understand things are meant to be. It's idealism at its best. And it sounds easy. But how do you, oh mortal human, know the ideal or goal or vision or end? That's the weakness of teleology and teleological ethics. It's ambiguous. Often, for that reason, it also gets hijacked by people. So in order to make a teleological argument, then you have to rely on assumptions. And if you want an oversimplified version of religion, religion is often a way to articulate a teleology and its corresponding ethics. And here's where I'm being a bit deceptive. I've already done this. I already gave this argument, but I didn't tell you that's what I was doing. Because in the episode on ecological entanglement, I said something along the lines about how all religious and philosophical traditions have some sort of telos. There's the kingdom of God, shalom, abadah, enlightenment, self-actualization, all this stuff. And I'm not saying all religions are the same. But a common theme in many is this idea of universal flourishing. And that's the picture I use for ecological entanglement. The entirety of wholeness, everything as it ought to be. And no doubt that needs flushed out, like I said, full of assumptions there. And in full disclosure, the purpose of becoming human is an attempt to begin fleshing that out. The point here, though, is to consider what is the way the story ends? You know, if this is a book, we will know the ultimate goal by how the book concludes. And if the story has a good ending, an ending of flourishing, then it can only be good if it is good for all the characters universally. That is how universal flourishing can be used as a teleology. And this is why I talked about health as the guiding vision for how we ought to relate to the world, because the smallest denomination of health is the shared health of everything. Remember, the life of everything will pass through the life of everything else. So if one part doesn't have that, it will eventually deter the conclusion of everything. Our current action should be determined by that ending of the story. That's my case. Our contingent nature should honor the inherent value to guide the continuing process toward this goal, universal flourishing. So the final principle ingredient or premise is that a larger perspective needs to inform our actions. And I'm not saying teleology or even my interpretation of teleology is the only way to do that, but you have to have something or else you're just going to default to convenience. 
that's how I do it. That's how I approach ecology. So as to offer a way of a thinking or a philosophy that gives a practical direction. The problem, maybe you're noticing, is that there still has to be a direction. So what is that? I haven't shared that yet. And, and honestly, this practice of uh, developing approach to ecology only exists for me as a creative alternative to most of the dominant discussions on ecology today. I, I just, I didn't like what was being offered and so I decided to go, I'm gonna start from scratch on this. But I think that if you start here, now you don't necessarily have a list of practices, you know, that will accept you into the green club when you check off the right boxes. It also makes it a bit more complicated to just play the rugged individual opposing the corrupt liberals card because we're talking about existence. And now we have to ask a lot more questions about how we do everything we do. Of course, those in opposition to mainstream ecology conversations will find themselves actually practicing some of these principles already. And on the other side, those with green hearts may find that in checking the contemporary boxes, they might have still left a lot of, uh, a lot of necessary ethics off the table. But... I don't want to dive into my practical solutions today. We'll save it for next time. Because actually enacting these four ingredients, well, I hate to say it, but in my opinion, it's quite impossible. So I've got a less discussed option to propose. It won't save the world, but it might help a small part of it. For now, thanks for listening. I hope you'll join me for the next episode on what is called Place Economy. <laughs>